Hey everybody, welcome to Outspoken. I am your host, Justin White, and this is episode 75. Uh, I'm a little bit late with this, or maybe a lot bit late, but um, you know, some things happen sometimes. Some weeks can be uh, overwhelming emotionally, mentally, sometimes physically, certainly politically. And uh, yeah, I'm left with very little time and energy and still a lot to do. So I hope that you shall forgive me in time. Uh, My guest this week is an old friend of my mom's and a friend of mine. Uh, His name's David Roach. On his website, he is described as an inspirational humorist. And I think that's a pretty good title. I find him to be inspiring and funny. Uh, He's also a very sweet human being and very intelligent and a little bit naughty, which I can appreciate. So uh, we had a really great conversation and uh, we will get right to it after we listen to this de facto river after heavy rains on Bernal Hill. I didn't really come prepared with any questions. Um, and I mean, I'm, re- I'm really just curious about your life. And the one thing I definitely wanted to, you to talk about is the, the church of 80% sincerity <laughs> at some point. Um, so we could either start, I mean, I also would love to hear all, you know, childhood stories or anything about your upbringing and you know, what, where you come from and anything. So, well, that actually is quite a few questions. I know, I did I throw know. in quite a few, but not, <laughs> nothing too specific. Yeah. Is it easier for you to get to just to have a, 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 tro- a topic, like a very direct pointed question? or? Well, let me start rambling, and you can steer me at any point. Okay, okay. that sounds good. Because I just turned 76, and I'm at the kind of point in my life where... Uh, I'm reviewing my life, and I'm looking at the things that I've done, and I think, oh, my God, like, it's amazing. I've had this amazing life. And who would think this guy with a facial difference, disfigurement is a stronger word and not one that people like to hear nowadays, but it's accurate. Um, Where did I get my confidence? How did I managed to believe in myself. How did I manage at any point in time, Justin? I feel like I didn't really know what I was doing. For example, in uh, the 1970s, I and other people, we were basically hippies. We decided to start the child care switchboard of San Francisco. Our thinking was that we were going to bring cooperative childcare to the single mothers of San Francisco. Well, as soon as we opened the phone lines, we got calls from mothers who did not want cooperative childcare. They needed childcare and they needed jobs. So we were talking to women uh, who were on AFDC, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, Welfare. Uh, and that changed my life. 
and that hippie enterprise within a few years had Floyd Foundation funding and it became the national model in the United States. So how, you know, I, I definitely didn't know what I was doing there. I cared about what was happening. I've always cared. I think uh, that's uh, something that's been important to me. Just, I've tended to come from my heart as best I can. Um, and how did that happen? I, I hear kids ask me in schools, well, you say, David, that your face is a gift and that you had to find your inner duty. How did you do that? <laughs> and I say, oh, oh yeah, well, I just take it for granted, kids. <laughs> uh, but th that's a question I feel like I do now try to answer because I believe that people with a facial difference do have a gift to bring into the world. And that is, we have learned to find our inner duty. We've had to. Not all of us are able to do that. Some people get crushed. Right. I've had contact with just many thousands of people. And I had a lot of love when I was a kid. I was the first grandchild. Okay, ding, that's 10 <laughs> points. <Yeah. laughs> I was the first child. Ding, that's 10 points. I was born at the very tail end of the Second World War. So at a time of deprivation and fear, even though the tide had turned in the war at that time, still, my father was in a prisoner of war camp in Germany. He was in Stalag 17. So mm -hmm. when a baby appears, it's like, yay! Yeah, that's life. Yeah, so I, I started out with lots of benefits. And I grew up as an Irish-American Catholic, <laughs> which definitely has its drawbacks. Right. Okay, let's talk sexual repression for one. <laughs> let's not talk sexual repression right. and seeing women, you know, the whole Madonna whore kind of thing. But there's also very positive things about being raised Catholic, and that is... Uh, the idea that, to take a biblical phrase, faith without works is dead. It doesn't matter if you believe ardently. If you don't do ardently, then who cares? Come on. <laughs> wow. So, <clears throat> well, so when you were born, you were, you were the first child. Yeah. And was there... Was there concern, like, was there much known about your condition or was there concern about your, your overall health? Um, the day I was born, there was a slight discoloration on my left eyelid and the doctor said, don't worry, you'll be gone in a few days. Obviously, it wasn't. Uh, when I was a year old, uh, the lower part of my face my lower lip, my chin, blossomed into what looked like a bunch of grapes, and so no, nobody knew what that was. Uh, the 
Tennyson. Tennyson, no, there's no history of it in my family at all. It still isn't. Uh, the family doctor was confused. I ended up at the Mayo Clinic, and um, at this point in my life, I looked back and I said, well, they're trying their best. Uh, they cut off my lower lip and the lower part of my mouth. I had other surgeries on my tongue, my throat. I had heavy radiation therapy. They didn't know what they were doing, really. Radiation was a miracle cure back then. Mm. They used to irradiate kids' tonsils oh. when they had tonsillitis. I didn't know that. That's awful. In our hometown, in the department store, in the shoe department, there was a machine you stuck your feet in it and it x-rayed your feet. Really? <laughs> yes. And so that was lots of fun. We used to sneak in there and play with it, you know, stick our hands in, right. you know, and try and stick our face in and stuff. That's amazing. Oh. <laughs> anyway, so they did that to me, and that, the lower part of my face stopped growing, and I lost my teeth, etc. So th th they didn't know. Now, now it would be different. Now, yeah. and my head is like a fucking museum, you know? <laughs> it's like a history of the diagnosis and treatment of vascular malformations. Um, so... Uh, now they would probably not do anything. They would say, okay, let's see what happens if this starts to go down. Right. And they probably wouldn't have it. They'd never do the radiation. The surgery would not be so eagerly done. Right. And uh, um, they would tend to use uh, more like lasers or something like that, less invasive. Right. But so the issue is that the veins continue to swell and grow and... They, sure. Over the years, they have slowly grown. It's like they do whatever they want to do. Uh -huh. you know? It's like veins going wild. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's definitely grown over the years. Are but, they able to treat? I mean, do, are lasers an option at this stage, or is that? Yes, I have had, uh, I think, two or three laser treatments. My tongue is getting large at as it makes it more difficult to swallow, and uh, it affects my speech. Uh, so I've had some laser on there and laser on the side of my face, and it brings it down, but then after a few months, it comes back. Okay. So, but that's what I have, basically, at this point. Do you I'm, have to do it in order to keep it from mm, down? Ah. I mean, with your okay, tongue. Okay, I'm it's... vain, okay? <laughs> I, uh, I don't know if I have to do it. Uh, the th here's the thing that is sometimes difficult, Justin. I'm the only one who really knows what's going on with me. Right. Uh, there's no body of knowledge that's going to be conveyed to me uh, my medical treatment has changed. It used to be uh, I would have like solo cowboy doctors who would say, I know, I know what's wrong with you. I'm the only one in the world who knows, and I'm the only one in the world who can deal with it. Mm. So here, make another appointment for next Tuesday. Right. Uh, now they have clinics where, like at University of California at San Francisco, 
Aloma Sweden, who's the head, uh, she's a pediatric dermatologist, probably the best woman in the world. She's the head of the vascular anomalies clinic, and I have gotten care there also at a similar one at, uh, in Vancouver with uh, Douglas Cotemange. And uh, there they gather, you know, oh, so one thing they have a social worker who knows something about feelings and uh, and, and, and they'll have like a dentist, they'll have a vascular person, they'll have a, a kinesiologist, all the, all the experts. All the experts, yeah, and all the people who know the laser treatment, the sclerotherapy, and things like that. And that is much better, because especially with someone like Aloma Sweden in charge, or Douglas Cotemans, you know, they facilitate and people are listened to. Right. Yeah. Right. And so the tendency tends to be with uh, to be uh, more careful with the care. That makes sense. Yeah. I hope that's true in every arena of medicine these days, but uh, I don't know that it is. I don't know. But but in your case, I mean, there was no one older that, than you that you were aware of or that anyone was aware of that you could refer to, right? <laughs> no. And as a matter of fact, I... Uh, I once in a while, I'll go to one of the vascular anomalies clinics, and I have the experience of sitting in the waiting room with like a dozen babies who are having various growths and things like that, and their parents are looking at me and saying like, oh my God, please no. Wow. Um, so that's a little embarrassing, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm usually <laughs> on the... The oldest one by far, by about three quarters of a century, actually. Uh -huh. um, well, can you talk more about it uh, being a gift and how that's like, come to be known to you? Like, how, 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 how young were you when you thought in those terms, and what, how did it develop as an idea? I really... Uh, this is an exaggeration. But I described myself as pretty much of an emotional zombie of until middle age, really. Um, In what way? You, well, you weren't I, tapped into I your just feelings? did not have, like many men, did not have emotional intent. I was always a nice guy, I was always thoughtful, I always did good things, but there was. The idea of seeing my face as a gift, for example, of having that inner self-confidence, uh, it really didn't flourish in me. It was there, and I had uh, an amazing life, but uh, it wasn't until my 30s. The first thing was quitting drinking. Mm. I had to do that. Um, I had just reached the end of the road in terms of, like, definitely not worth doing anymore. And then... Um, did you go into recovery, or were, did you just stop? <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, at that time, I just stopped. And later on, after I went back to drinking for a few years, and I realized that that was really stupid, then I, I went into a, a program, 12-step program, mm -hmm. and that so that's been the case for 15 years now, so that, but I'd stopped, uh, I was, uh, you know, and some people say, well, that's being a dry drunk. Yeah, but still, 
I did it. Yeah. And it counts. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and in 1987, uh, I quit cigarettes, alcohol, coffee, and marijuana. All at once? Over a period of seven months. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's really amazing. That takes a hell of a lot of will to, yeah. or something. I don't Faith. I don't know what. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what some you kind call of determination. That. Yeah, That's yeah. I'm sure there's a delusional aspect, in, <laughs> but uh, I did it. Um, All on your own. Um, I had friends who were going to twelve-step programs, and they were an example to me. And I went to uh, a number of them, but and it, it didn't really. I didn't feel like I needed that at that time. Mm-hmm. I've changed since then. Um, um, ask the question again. Oh, yeah. Um, did I do it on, oh, did I do that all on my own? Well, I had quit uh, the uh, cigarettes and alcohol uh, and coffee on my own, and I was so proud, you know, but I was still, you know, token. Yeah. Uh, every chance I got, uh-huh. you know. And, and then uh, I went to work for the city and county of San Francisco, and uh, you had an opportunity to uh, check out the employee assistance program. You could take a couple of days off to go and interview, and I, so I thought, oh, I want to do that. You know, I just get a couple of days off. I went and talked to, uh, there was this uh, counselor, and I, you know, he's asking me how he's doing, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I just, I just totally quit drinking. And he said, now let me ask you this. <laughs> he said, uh, you ever use marijuana? And I said, oh sure, that really helps in quitting drinking. You know, uh, and he said, well, it's, you're still an addict if you do that. Mm. So, and I said, yeah. but I quit. Wow, did you quit, like right, right after he said that, you, you Got it in your head that it was time? pretty close, yeah. I don't remember exactly, but it happened at that time. And then I look back on that, and I think the next year I met Marina. Oh. Uh, so I sort of felt like I had to clean up to get to meet her. Okay. And, uh, so then I had sobriety and I had love. Wow. And uh, and there was a point in which uh, I. I was pursuing Marlena, and uh, I, I felt like I had this kind of feeling, why am I doing this? I'm, I'm just losing myself in this woman. I, it's just, I need to do something for myself. So I took these uh, classes called The Humor of Recovery, recovery in a 12-step sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Lee Lipstein, who still does this, sticking circles, he calls them, in Marin County, um, uh, was teaching it as humor in recovery. And he said, don't tell jokes. Just tell the truth about your life. That's the funniest thing of all. <laughs> now, especially any of the listeners who have ever been in a 12-step program know that the meetings are often just like you're convulsed with laughter as someone tells their story. Right, that's true. (laughs) 
you know, because you're just hearing some new person being totally delusional. <laughs> I used to get really uncomfortable when, when people would laugh if when I was new in, in meetings because <laughs> I thought they're laughing at me or they're, you know, even if it wasn't me speaking or it wasn't my story. I, well, actually, I would just get really sensitive for anyone that I saw in the room who looked like they were in pain, you know. And when you see, I mean, the laughter ultimately is probably good for them. But in that moment, it looked like it made it worse. I, yeah. And you're sitting there and the laughter erupts and the person is like, what? Yeah. What, what did I say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it feels like you're being singled out and, and made fun of sometimes. Ah, indeed you are. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Tough love. Yeah. But it's loving laughter. Yeah. Yeah, as long as you stick around long enough to get the hug at the end or yeah. somebody, you know, give you their number. But I, I don't know. There were so many times where I almost ran out of the rooms just because I, I was like, they don't get it. Nobody gets it. Nobody gets what I'm feeling, you know. And then yeah. you learn that everybody gets what you're feeling. You know, to some to some extent. In some way, there's definitely a number of people who get it. Yeah, yeah. Thanks out to that. Yeah. Well, I did eventually leave because I felt like, well, I don't know. I think there are several reasons, but um, I still didn't feel totally gotten. But I think that's sort of my own deal. Like that's the way that I uh, resist. I, I'm very open with people, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. But there's when it comes to my the real aspects of my character my most authentic self i'm i'm fairly reserved about showing it in a like in a room in a big room full of people so, well, so i didn't yeah. feel like i had real close connections i think everybody shares that to some degree or another yeah me i'm sort of the opposite end of that spectrum i you know i see three people together and that's an audience yeah <laughs> you start spilling your guts yeah no. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, the Church of 80% Sincerity, which uh, was my signature one-man show, um, yeah, it, it was uh, based on just telling the truth about my life. Um, and uh, uh, I started out, I thought I was going to be a comedian. I, I joined a group called Access to Comedy. Uh, we did a show... Uh, Oh, what's that? I forget the names of the theaters in San Francisco. Uh, we did shows there. The Marsh, uh, maybe? Uh, no, it wasn't. Yeah, I did. Uh, I, I did a couple of things at the Marsh that mm. no, I, I can't remember. It's a larger place. Okay. Um, and uh, I would make jokes about myself. People did not like that. Mm. You know, stupid stuff like. Look at my face. It's a it, it's a Den and Jerry's flavor. Mm -hmm. You know, some stupid stuff but when here's what I do on stage here's the secret of my success one I have two secrets of my success I get out there and you know I can see there's always a, a silence not the kind of locked in silence but the, the silence of like they're all in visual mode checking me out this guy's supposed to be funny oh my god what happened Right. You know, it's all messed up. Um, but I have uh, a great presence, and I have a voice so that I am confiding in them. I'm intimate with them. I have them ask, as a group, what happened to your face? 
And they love that. You know, it's acknowledging them and what they want. They want to know what happened. Right. And so I tell it. And within 10, 15 minutes, I have shaped shifted from someone who is from certain angles, certainly, gruesomely disfigured into someone who's incredibly attractive. Uh-huh. And they see it, and I can see their eyes light up. And it's not just happening for me. And so then I entertain them with jokes and stuff like that. Um, and we had a good time. And it's not just me who shows that, but they know that they could do that themselves. Because one of the basic things I learned, and it took me a few years to figure it out, is that everybody feels that they're disfigured. Mm. Everybody has something. You know, it can be a mole, it can be uh, a bunion, it can be a hair that's the wrong color, uh, and it can be something inside. Uh, You have a learning disability. I, I did a talk, a keynote, early on in my career to a group of people who had learning disabilities and that they had grown up in the era when there was no recognition of that at all. And I didn't understand, hey, wait a minute, I'm facially different. You guys look normal. Uh, Why do you want me? And and as I stalked, I could see people were crying. Mm. And what became clear to me afterwards was that they had spent their childhood and young adulthood feeling disfigured. It's just not as obvious as mine. And they had to go through stuff like, you're lazy, you're stupid. Right. Get your shit together. Yeah. You know, so, and, 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 and everybody has something, um, inside or outside. So you said you've been reflecting on your life, and are there parts of it that come to the surface and really stand out as like life-changing moments, or, or do you do you just like are you just sort of reveling in the fact that it's been so good, or what's 
What's the reflection been about? Yeah, when you raise Catholic, you don't get to revel. Okay. Sorry. You just you <laughs> have to feel guilty all you the time. You can revel in shame, okay? That's the only one, okay. <laughs> I do that. I do, uh, in the Catholic erotica, I start out the show with a shame meditation. Oh, uh-huh, that's amazing. Okay, like, close your eyes and go back to that time when the, for the first time you felt the joy of shame. Maybe you were caught masturbating. Maybe you said the word fuck for the first time and you saw that look in your Terrence face and you knew that it was time to be ashamed. Go back there, how did you feel? Breathe into that deeper shame that lives down inside you. And and I actually carry off the whole thing. It's really it's, powerful. It's people, incredible. I, I can, I, people, you can see they're kind of glassy-eyed, you know. Because uh, they're actually doing it. They're, they're, ex- do, actually, they're actually doing it. Living yeah, it. Wow. They're actually doing it. That's amazing. Because, you know, it's all those kind of meditations are, if you have that kind of voice. Right. You then, can bring them right there. Yeah. It's hypnotic, and probably most people. Well, everybody's got shame of some kind, real or perceived. But um, it's, and I don't think it's very hard to access for most people. I think this just the mention of shame brings up the memories of what caused it. You know, and when you started, I was like being caught masturbating. That would be a good one. Like the, the very first thing you said was the first thing that came to my mind, even though it wasn't something that happened to me. It just was like an idea that. I don't know. It seems like everybody would just immediately go to that, what it is for them, or or a list of things that could elicit shame. Everybody's got it. Yeah, it's yeah. always there. Yeah. So what do we do about it? How do we, um, what's, a, what's a healthy way? I mean, meditating into it might be the, the answer. That might be the way to work well, through it. Well, actually, you do the meditation, and uh, that helps you out right away. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what you need to do is you come to the nice show, Catholic Erotica. Okay. <laughs> because it's Catholic Erotica, Cohen, be proud of your shame. Nice. Okay. So it's kind of So it really it. is about that. It's about, is, is the intent re- truly to help people work through it and lift it? Just or is then, it mostly comedy? You know, with everything I say, there's an element of truth there's an element of edginess, there's an element of sincerity, there's an element of, like, mind-sucking. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, so take your tip. Okay. Because all those things are in there, right? you know. Um, but it's always coming from a full heart, right? I, I hope you... so. I try and I'm, I, I feel like, uh, especially in recent years, I really tried to pay attention to making my decisions from my heart. Mm. I uh, I grew up in the 1950s into the 60s, and uh, I was the oldest of seven children. And I don't often tell people this, but when I was in eighth grade, I took an IQ test. I got an IQ of 170. Whoa. And that sounds, oh, great, you're so smart. And I am very smart. But that locks you into a certain encouragement, like, oh, you'd be a priest. Well, 
I'm not sure I want to be a priest. Well, no, you should because you're so smart. Or you should be a lawyer. Or you should do this. And uh, it, led, it led me into the, the life of being a smart person to be living in my brain when it really would have been better for me to be living in my heart. Mm, that's uh, interesting. Well, I, I think this is the kind of thing that happens to people in all sorts of ways. Yeah. But, uh, if the yeah. focus is drawn to the intellect, yeah, you so might forget. Yeah, so I was always the smart guy. Mm. And, I, and which allowed me actually to cruise academically because I had this reputation right. that was justified in a certain sense. But, you know, I took a degree in philosophy magna cum laude, and I never gave care about one iota of what I was doing. Really? Yeah, yeah. Huh. Did you feel like a fraud in any ways during that time? I felt like I was supposed to do what I was told to do. Okay. You know, and, uh, and in my first real job, I worked my way through uh, college in the steel mills, Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company, I really enjoyed that. I was a laborer in the steel mills. I know I don't look the tight, okay? <laughs> but, uh, you know, you do. You do what you have to do, and that's the way you could make money back in those days, back there. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, well, yeah, you don't have a Midwestern background, so you you didn't live during the time of the heyday of no. the second, after the Second World War. Anyhow, yeah, it was my way through. There and I enjoyed those jobs. You know, I felt like I was a man. Right. Yeah, that felt good. You know, yeah. it all covered the dirt and grit. You know, and then uh, my first job was as a computer programmer for the International Harvester Corporation in Broadview, Illinois. Wow. Uh, in 1966, uh, the computers that we worked on had 4K, 4K, <laughs> you know, that's, that's amazing. it, that's, yeah. So what were you programming? Um, you know, Harvesting uh, uh, schedules? Uh, financial systems for uh, okay. the farm equipment division of International Harvester, which no longer exists as such. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, it was the first job that I was offered. And it was more money than my dad hasn't made in his whole life. Wow. Um, so, yeah, of course you're supposed to do that. But the truth is, I hated every nanosecond of it. I, I'm a people person, totally, and I don't like to be in front of a screen. Yeah. Well, we didn't even have screens in those days. Right. Um, so you so were just kind of going through the motions at that, yeah. at that stage? Yeah, Just doing, right. doing what you thought you were supposed to do? Yeah, and then... Uh, that that kind of uh, changed uh, as uh, uh, I got that computer programmer job, then I got married, um, and even then, Joan was a wonderful person. We shouldn't have been married. Okay, here's you have sex with someone, you're Catholic, what do you do? You marry them. <laughs> Quick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And Joan got pregnant a month after we got married, and he wow. was born, and that was glorious for sure. But uh, I don't know what kind of path I'm going down right now, Justin. What am I, why am I talking about any of this? I don't know. It's I interesting. Know. Okay. It's your life. <laughs> yeah, it's my life. 
well, I did. I mean, I asked you because you said you'd been reflecting. And one of the things you said right at the beginning was like, where did I get the confidence? Yeah. So do you think that was is it your intelligence that, that sort of gave you this? Well, I uh, could ride up? that. Yeah. I could ride the, I always knew, I always had total faith in my intelligence. That obviously to the point of arrogance mm-hmm. and uh, total faith in my uh, sense of humor. That was it's always like, there? Oh, total. My, that was the whole thing in my family. Seven kids mm-hmm. were sitting around the dinner table and we played games. And my, my father would do things like that. Uh, he'd say, Okay, I'm going to teach you how to make a speech now. Kevin, I want you to give a two minute talk on what it's like to live inside a ping pong ball. Okay, so, and he would do it. Nice. Uh, yeah, and, and, and so it was always fun. So your yeah, dad had a sense of humor? Or, or he was did, he like we a all philosophical did. mind? Or? Yeah, we all, we all did. That's yeah. cool. Um, oh, I, I, I was telling someone, and we would get physical too, which is great, but my mother could clasp her hands behind her back and bring them over her head to the front without uh, unclasping them. Wow. Yeah. So that, that was always wonderful. We always wanted her to show our friends. And then so we'd all get into things like, I had this trick that I figured out, I, really, I think it's one of the most brilliant things I ever did. I had a nickel, okay, uh-huh. in my hand, and this, this works with the kids younger than me. I, I took five pennies and I held them in my mouth under my tongue. Uh-huh. And I'm going to say, kids, I'm going to make change for this nickel in my belly button. Okay? Watch carefully. I take the nickel and I shove it inside my innie. Okay? And then I make the... And then all of a sudden I go, Bleh! and I stood out the five pennies onto the floor. And they go, oh, oh, wow. And, and the, the look at the pennies, of course, and as they did that, I took the nickel in my pocket. Nice. And then they said, let's see your belly button. It's gone. Well, take a look. Wow. It's in there. Yeah. That is pretty brilliant. And you're, <laughs> and you're young? You were a little, you were young when you I did that? I was a teenager when okay. I did that kind of thing. So that's the kind of thing that went over the day in our family. That's great. That and sports. We did sports all the time. Really? Everybody? My dad always was a part-time sports writer. He was a good writer. But, you know, as the kids accumulated, you know, we had to have jobs and stuff. So Yeah. Um, yeah he was the sports editor of the local Catholic newspaper, oh. the Sunday Visitor. We think, oh, it's a Catholic. But in those days, it reached quarter of a million people. Really? Because it went free to every household that was Catholic. Wow. And, and he wrote this sports column. So he is well known. How do they know what, who, who was Catholic? Hmm? How do they, they just like go on the rolls of the church? Yeah, or yeah, what? yeah, yeah. So that's some basically of these people. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's and, interesting. Uh, so that... Uh, so would you feel pressure to to be good at sports, or does it just I have fun? I didn't feel pressure. It? I just loved it. We okay. all loved it. Yeah, you know, one of my brothers felt pressure. You know, uh, I don't think it's fair to say he wasn't as skilled, but he felt he wasn't as skilled. And yeah, um, anyway, we all did. You know that Midwestern, uh, U.S. 
post-World War II sports, basketball, in Indiana, basketball, of course. Yep. Football, baseball, softball. Yeah. And we do other things with docks. You know, did crazy. I did doxing, you know, with a, 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 the left side of my head is like the Swiss cheese, you know. I get pounded. Yeah, is, there yeah, is there any danger in that? Like having the veins closer to the surface is, and being and it being probably punched, was, it? you know. And yeah. I, you know, you don't care about stuff like that when you're into that kind of thing. I yeah. know I've taken, I'm sure I had several concussions. Really? I mean, well, you know, you get submarine on the basketball court and you fall back and you hit your head. Well, yeah, you know, and you get up and, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> You keep playing. But, yeah, so that was, you know, and actually... When I talk about feeling good about myself, that was an element of it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, like, if you could play baseball, then you were on a team and you were with other people, with other guys. Right. And uh, and and my father taught me how how to field a ground ball that was sit right at my feet and just going to bounce and tell me that I had to block it. Mm-hmm. You know, and he taught me how to, like, how to uh, rebound. You just, uh, you know, shove, hit the other guy out of the way and, and all kinds of stuff like that. And so I was, it, was, it was a life of constant low-level violence, uh-huh. you know, hitting <laughs> dodgeball, you know. Um, but uh, it was still touch, and I was still in my body in that way. Yeah. So... Uh, that that that's something else that my dad gave me that I really didn't appreciate until after after he died and I realized that yeah what I got yeah and then what about like relationships at that like as you were a teenager or or young man was it was that a difficult that, yeah arena? it was definitely difficult <clears throat> um, being the oldest boy in an Irish Catholic family being smart. And being an altar boy and stuff like that, there was constant encouragement, or you could say pressure, to become a priest. Mm. Uh, and so I entered. Actually, the worst thing that ever happened to me in terms of insults, I was went to the University of Notre Dame at age 13 to be interviewed at the Holy Cross Seminary there. Uh, wanted to enter the seminary, which you could do at those 13, days. You could at age thirteen, Whoa. yeah, that was a thing. Um, That's crazy. That's like prime masturbating age. You, know, you, can't, you can't like take that away from a kid. It was, and that's a mortal sin. So, so at age thirteen, you were able. You were not only able, but encouraged to, to enter masturbate? the seminary to masturbate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, you don't need any encouragement. It's all, it's all internal. No, I, I was always like a year younger. In class, okay. and so I remember that. Okay, let's go there. I remember, you know, the other boys uh, were always talking about the, the phrase that was used then was jacking off. Right. Yeah. And when you think of all that, this is something from Catholic America. You think of all the phrases that are used for nail masturbation. There are a lot of beating the neat. Right. Uh, you know. Spanking the monkey. Uh, spanking the monkey, choking yeah. the chicken, right. pounding the tud. You know, it's like, it's, it's all violence. Yeah, they're all pretty, you know, pretty rough. It's not something you really want to consider doing <laughs> to, your, to your little buddy down there. 
So, so anyway, I, uh, I, I knew I could jack off, you know, but yeah. I couldn't shoot. Oh. Uh, so like, I was just kind of waiting for the time that I could shoot, and I didn't know how this was going to happen. I remember the night that I was, you know, jacking off right. in, uh, in bed, and I could tell, uh-oh, something happened. What is that stuff? Right. You know, I ran downstairs to the bathroom. Oh, my God, I shot. <laughs> it's oh, like a, it's quite the, the happiest day in my life. It's quite an achievement, <laughs> isn't it? It's, yeah, I remember it. I remember the very first time. Yeah. I don't think I'll ever forget. Yeah, it was pretty so, glorious. <laughs> anyway, but anyway, I, I, I was at the the interview at the uh, Holy Cross Seminary at the University of Notre Dame, uh, and there were two priests, and I'm telling them how you know. I think I want to be a priest and I love Jesus and all that. And they said, we're sorry, but you're too ugly to be a priest. They said, the exact words were, because of your appearance, the prisoners would not be able to have any respect for you. Oh. And that was like, what? Uh, that's Being so raised, horrible to say, yeah. to say and, that. And because and, I was raised as a Catholic and a priest, when the priest spoke, he was conveying the word of God. Right. So I was basically hearing God telling me that I was a monster. Right. And that was just like getting hit with a two by four. Yeah, it sounds awful. Because up till then, the nuns, I had been told, you're a child of God. This is another thing that gave me confidence. That, that, that Catholic childhood, you're a child of God. David, you are a soul. Mm. Your soul is inside of you, and that's who you are. So, not that I really understood any of this stuff, but it was like I was beautiful, and there's something inside me, right. not outside me, not my face. But then these two priests kind Told of me, shut the door on that whole thing, yeah. right? How, what was that like after? Like, did it take you? Didn't talk about it. Really? Yeah. You never Just told anybody. It inside. But that must have been super painful to. I mean, especially at that age to hear something like that. Yeah, it was like, no, perfect age for that. Right to ruin um, your ruin you for a couple <laughs> decades. I mean, I I have stuff much less intense than that that still stuck with me. You know, at that age, you hear something about yourself, something yeah. negative. It just is a knife in the heart. It's not just, good. No. And it shapes you in some ways. Like, it, it messes with your identity. Yeah. Like, permanently, I think. Or at least until you can go back and repair the damage. For me, it's like, a, it, it's, it's hard to not... I would absolutely hold a grudge against those individuals, but then I would also have a hard time not generalizing to, like, anybody else like them, you know? I would just yeah. sort of think, well, everybody thinks that about me. I'm sure I carried that also, Justin, but yeah. I'm also has been very good at compartmentalizing. That's good. Uh, like, for example, I really never talked about my face until I met Marlena. Um, it was always, and I never even knew what happened to me, what I had until I was 30 years old and I went to a clinic at the University of California at San Francisco. So there was, you didn't even have a name for no. it at that point? Until no, my 30? parents said, oh, it's a birthmark. Wow. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. 
Uh, anyhow, I did go to a different, oh, I didn't talk about my face. And even the first six months that Marlena and I were lovers, I did not tell her what happened to my face. I was so used, but what Marlena did, we were like the, another accomplishment that I had had, that Marlena and I were two of the co-founders of the first massage therapy program in a hospital in the United States. Really? Yeah. It was at the hospital that was Pacific Presbyterian. Now it's uh, Southern Health. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, wow. I still get the name of the hospital. Yeah. Um, and it was like an integrated massage program within the hospital? Uh, yeah, it started on a particular unit that they're trying to do new things on, and we came in and did it. And then it got turned into the after we proved ourselves. I did that for what two, two and a half years. We volunteered, but at first, that's how I met Marlena. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And we would practice massaging each other as, as if we were hospital patients, and there are certain protocols you have to follow, of course. Right. Uh, but she would touch my face. Nobody else ever touched my face. Wow. You know, why would someone want to touch my face? Mm. Well, I mean, in boxing, you got punched, <laughs> right. you know. But, uh, so that's how that I learned to trust her. And it took me half a year, half a year, a little lovers. Yeah. And, uh, but she never had, she never asked about it? She never asked mm -hmm. about it. No. She was just she, waiting for you to. She was yeah. respecting what it was she saw that I didn't talk about. Wow. It. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's a pretty, that's a testament to her character. And yeah. Testament to her hands. Yeah. Um, well, she's got a certain magic. Anyhow, I was back answering the question of relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I did go to a different seminary, um, and the name of it is St. Lawrence Seminary in the town of Mount Calvary, Wisconsin. And that's important because that seminary later became the epicenter of pedophilia in the United States. Really? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Holy you shit, actually holy. went there? You, yeah, I actually you attended, went there. I had no knowledge of anything like that happening. Oh, that's good. Um, yeah. But it uh, must have been happening all around you, or or, or did it come later? I don't know. The, the revelations, as they started to come forward, were mainly starting like in the 70s. Okay. And I got out of there in 1961. Wow. Um, I was kicked out, actually. Really? Yeah, after four years. For what? Uh, they said I was the worst influence they ever had. <laughs> and that was because I had a sense of humor. Yeah, that was not, not a good. I, I learned, uh, you know, discipline, and uh, I learned Latin, and I learned German, and I learned theology, and all kinds of that kind of stuff. But it—it—it uh, uh, it, it was, yeah, not good. And and there were like I think ninety-seven of us that started in freshman year. And by the end of senior year, there were like four left. Wow. Everybody else said quit, and a few of us got kicked out. So, in the topic of sex and uh, relationships, I had good male friends that were not sexual, uh, 
And uh, uh, so basically, I would masturbate, you know. I had this flaming sexual desire to try and seize every opportunity I could. Yet, masturbation was a mortal sin. If you died with a mortal sin on your soul, you'd go right to hell. Mm -hmm. Now, okay, as time went by, you started realizing, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, this is bullshit. But still, this is what you're imbued with. So uh, I would be back, and we have to go to mass every morning. I'd be in the back, there'd be like about 10 of us guys um, who go to confession. Bless me, Father, so I have sinned. I touched myself and then into a way. And the priest was, yeah, and it's like I'm sure he knew who it was. Uh-huh. And sometimes he said, were you alone or were you with others? I was alone, Father, yes. And okay, well, uh, Ego Teozalvo, say ten no marries, and so then your sin's forgiven. Oh, thank God, I'll go to heaven if I die. And then you go back the next day and you know, have to do well, it again? I try and hold out for money. <laughs> yeah, often, often, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> That's, I, I, having not had any sort of religious influence like that it's so hard for me to imagine what what that would be like to sort of carry because i i think there's a certain amount of guilt there's almost guilt intrinsic guilt in the act just like societally there's like all this pressure to not do it i remember watching movies in junior high in health class about masturbation and saying they're trying to tell you that it's normal but in in the process of doing so, they make you feel like the least normal thing you could ever do, you know. Like it, like the reenactment of the kid feeling ashamed about it is what you really associate with, and that, yeah. you know that's what I I was like, oh, it's obviously something you have to hide, you know, and um and you have to hide your materials if you have any, and you know, uh-huh. but to have to like go say whether it's a priest or anyone else, whether it's the un, supposedly under the guise of you know, secrecy or privacy, I would never, I don't think I could do it. I don't think, I think I would rather hold on to the guilt than actually go and admit that I had done it, you know. I think that's a wise choice. Thank thank you.
So, okay, so then you left the seminary, you were kicked out of the seminary. I went to St. Joseph's College in the middle of the cornfields of Indiana, an all-male college, so that didn't help much at all either. Right. And I was still uh, in an all-male environment, you know, you didn't have any opportunity to, like, to get to know females as human beings. Right. You know? They were more of like a... Yeah, so that was fantasy. four years of that, and then uh, were there no girls' colleges nearby or any sort of yeah, they would weekend set trips? Mixers, right? Mixers, right? Where you're not actually allowed to mix very much. Like yeah, you can't, well, you, can't, you know, know and actually, I I look back and I see that I had opportunities that I wasn't as disgusting as I thought I might have been. Hmm. Um, but I didn't take advantage of them, and somehow then I got out of college, and uh, uh, I lived with uh, three roommates on the west side of Chicago. I lived in Lincoln Park and stuff like that. And uh, then I met Joan, and, uh, and we had sex. And that was like, I equated that with love. And if there's sex, then comes marriage. And that was... Immensely foolish. Mm. She's a fine person, you know. But was she I, also Catholic? No, no. Huh. I remember. Um, I called my mother, and said, "Mom, Joan and I are going to get married in a couple of weeks. We're going to go down to City Hall in Chicago." And my mother said, "Oh, well, I guess you're going to go to hell." Whoa. And I said, well, let me think about it now. <laughs> so just doing it in that way was like yeah. equal, it was just like the wrong, you're supposed to do it surrounded by family or what, what was the, what was you're the? You're supposed to get married in a Catholic in the church, church okay. to a Catholic. With like on your knees doing the whole sacrament and everything. Yeah, the whole thing, yeah. Wow. She just said, so I guess you're going to go to hell and that yeah. was it? Yeah, and I was like, oh, uh, what? That's pretty yeah. horrifying to hear from your yeah. mother. Well, you know, that's my mom. She was uh, had a passing in the district. But, uh, you know, back in those days, uh, women had different ways of surviving and yeah. thriving. And, uh, so did that scare you into doing it in yeah, the church? Yeah, scared me into okay. it. And then what was it like for Joan to be... Like, what was her experience of it, as far as you could tell? Was she like, cool, we're getting married, I'm happy with it? She Either loves way, me. Or, yeah. She had reasons why she loves me, and she could say them. I don't remember what they were. One of them was being funny, and then I had a job and stuff like that. But uh, I had no conception of love. To me, it was sex. Yeah. And that's love. And then you get married. Right. And then you, you do what you're supposed to do. Yeah. So how long did you stay married? I mean, you had a kid, you said, are you like a month married after you conceived? Married in 1967, kid in 68. We separated in 1971. Hmm. Um, when, uh, we were living in Bloomington, Indiana, in the... Uh, uh, 1968 through 71, and uh, that was the a wave of feminism, and only uh, 
it wasn't feminism, it was sexual liberation. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, and so my experience, which was quite glorious, <laughs> um, we started cooperative childcare centers. And all of a sudden, I was a model male because I'm so nice right. and charming and Taking funny and listening kids. and I like kids and I'm the oldest of seven kids so I know how to take care of kids. Uh-huh. And, and so women are coming on to me. Wow. And we moved into what we call the commune. Uh, oh, Jesus. <laughs> I, uh, the only thing we had in common was long hair and drugs. Uh-huh. And the second Davis dealer in Bloomington lived with us. Okay. Uh, and so that down in the hall closet, just inside the front door, there was a huge bushel basket full of marijuana. Now, marijuana, back then, it was hemp. Right. Hemp was a cash crop in Indiana. Uh-huh. Um, and so what uh, we smoked was that, which was definitely not Top grade, right? As they say, that was like ten dollars for a lid. Uh-huh. So uh, that that was dope, and I became a hippie. Okay. Uh, and and then I had all these women who found me attractive. So I started, mm, and this was okay. You know, this is the thing to do. This mass monogamy. Right. Well, as it turned out, not everybody thought that was a great idea. Mm. Um, and Joan. Uh, did not think so either, as it turned out. Although the, she did her own thing too. But uh, anyhow, that was fun. I like that. <laughs> yeah. But then, <laughs> that was oh, so fun. And um, then uh, I decided that I needed to stay married, and we decided to move to San Francisco in 1971. And wow. so there we were. But, uh, but then you. You moved here together, or you moved to San Francisco together, and then yeah, and then um, s- you know, about a year later we separated. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nineteen seventy-one, September ninth, nineteen seventy-one. I arrived in San Francisco. Amazing! It was what a 98 time! Ninety-eight degrees. Holy crap! That's, yeah, that's rare. <laughs> like, oh my God! Let's go swimming. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to go swimming, Dave. <laughs> no, no, why not? Let's go. Yeah, go in the ocean. Ah! Right. Hypothermia within minutes. <laughs> yeah, um, and that. So, what was your life like here? If you, I mean, I keep saying here, but in in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, once you separated, did you have custody of your daughter? Did you? We went half and half. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That that's the time that uh, uh, we were starting the childcare switch for, and then it became also the single parent resource center. Okay. Um, and I worked there for eight years, and uh, while I worked there, uh, I had a political education because all day long I was talking to single moms who were trying to find services, and they learned the truth about what living in San Francisco was really like. Now, it's different now, as I'm sure you know, yep. you know, because back then there were uh, African-American neighborhoods, you know, the Western Edition, the Trail, Daisy yep. uh, Hunters Point, and so on. Fillmore. Uh, I ended up becoming, uh, uh, got involved in politics. Uh, we passed a child care initiative 
uh, which needed the policy of the city and county of San Francisco that every child should have child care. However, it was not uh, a law. It was a policy. Right. So Easy to not follow. Not follow at all. You got, I got on the Mayor's Committee on Child Care. I forget who was mayor then. I think it was Alioto. Mm. Um, and uh, the, the committee was stacked like the social workers, and they all wanted to get money out of this. They mm. all wanted that. We need to do more studies. No, you don't. <laughs> We've been running the child care switch for eight years, and we have all this information yeah. about what's really happening. We don't need more studies. Yeah. So I was disgusted with that. I knew friends were becoming communists. Then it seemed like socialism and communism was the wave of the future in Africa and Latin America. Um, and uh, so I became a Marxist-Leninist, and I was a dedicated communist for 12 years. I thought this organization, the Democratic Workers' Party, as it became definitely known in a few years, uh, it was founded by 10 women. And so I thought, well, that must be a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that was long. You know, mm-hmm. that <laughs> just because it was founded by 10 women, that really, well, it meant a little bit. It was some good things, but mainly it was the same as every other West organization that sprang into being at that time. Uh, but I spent 12 years doing that. Wow. Um, dedicated, yeah. Mm-hmm. Getting about six hours sleep a night <laughs> all that time, yeah. So what was it like to see that wave sort of dry out or crash or whatever, you know, like to have communism then become such a bad thing <clears> and, and within your lifetime? Like In, Inside the organization, there was alcoholism. Mm. Uh, the founder, Marlene Dixon, uh, became a very active alcoholic. This was hidden from the rank and file, which I was the rank and file. I would never be trusted. I was too much of a wise ass um, <laughs> to, uh, to be trusted. Um, although I did learn to be a public speaker there and uh, had some great experiences. But uh, it was, I would say that alcoholism was the death of the organization. Wow. Because, uh, and it became in that way like a cult, like Dixon was surrounded by the central committee who protected her. Right. You know, until finally the alcohol really started hurting people badly. Mm. And people started leaving and, uh, you know, it was uh, veganism and anti-communism. And we were never like smash the state kind of people. We were excellent organizers. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, that ended. Um, did and you then f- I had to find myself. Yeah, I was going to say, like, did that leave you feeling like you didn't have an identity then? or? Did yeah. You, yeah, I was a true believer up until the end. Yeah. Uh, and it fell apart, and uh, I had to find... I weighed 115 pounds. Now, I'm a little guy, but I'm not that little. Nobody said it. I was like... 
anyway, 115 pounds. I'm smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. I'm, uh, I'm smoking dope. And uh, I'm drinking uh, uh, the cheapest vodka I could get. You know, <laughs> I get like a pint of lemon flavored gin or lemon flavored vodka. You know, and uh, it was just uh, an analgesic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then, but I knew that uh, I, I had to come out of that, that I saw it as a spiritual uh, problem. But, uh, so I tried going back to Catholicism. That was a dead end. I, uh, I remember I went to a Holy Redeemer Church. At that time, I was living with, uh, and had been living uh, in, in 1971, after Joe and I split up, I started living with three gay men who were the pioneers in gay liberation. How, how do I end up living with three gay men who were the pioneers of gay liberation in San Francisco? How did that happen? I don't know. You have no idea. But I love those guys. And it was in, they, they're all passed now, two from age. And uh, one from just old age. Um, I'm digressing. <laughs> yeah, they, they had incredible influence on my life. So I was living uh, uh, then uh, on the edge of the AIDS epidemic. Actually, I lived with Gary, Gary Titus, after I got out of the party. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Gary became the first manager of the AIDS office in San Francisco. Mm. So you seen the movie Harvey Milk. Yeah. I lived through that. That's I knew a lot of those people. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I didn't forget to tell you that I knew Harvey Milk. I actually knew Harvey Milk. That's amazing. In the early stages of his career, we were both together on a, a mental health advisory board in Noah Valley. That's cool. Um, and uh, he was great. He, he, he was fantastic because I was representing childcare and, you know, single parents especially, and he was gay. But he was not like gay, like I'm only gay and gay is it and right. gay is everything. You know, he said, we have to work together, you know. And so, and we started like, Working together, I only knew him for like half a year. Yeah, but uh, he was a great guy. That seemed to be his his strength is that he brought communities together, not just the gay community, but he yeah. just kind of reached out to everybody. Because you know, my daughter went to Harvey Milk Civil Rights Academy, uh-huh. that's ele- right, elementary that's right. school, and that's like his legacy lives on there completely. And it, you know, the whole thing was that he just he got into the community and got to know everybody, and everyone loved him. You know. Yeah, he had this great presence. Yeah, and yeah. and just a really huge heart and really great causes that he was fighting for. So that's cool that you that you crossed paths with him. That's, yeah. Um. Well, uh, how are you feeling? Do you, I feel like we should probably just begin to wrap up. Is there anything you didn't talk about that you wish you had or would like to? Let me see. Childhood, seminary, college, computer programmer, marriage, hippie, sexual liberation, communism, childcare switchboard, 
clean up the bed, determining uh, uh, getting clean and sober, meeting Marlena, starting the massage program, starting the child care switchboard. Here I am, determining a pioneer in disability culture. I did it my way. Here's, I'm trying to learn this song. <coughs> no, yeah, no, je ne rate rien. Dirai-len, comme a fait, That's good. Yeah. Is it Edith Piaf? Yeah, I'm trying to imitate Edith Piaf. That's great. There's, there's so much ego I have. And then so he says, oh, I'm going to say Edith Piaf. Right. You yeah. can do it. And then I thought, after that, then I'm doing Elvis. Are you lonesome tonight? Amazing. Do you miss me? And then I'll do, I fall to pieces each time I hear your name. That's amazing. You're warming up for your musical. Yeah, that's right. Go to get ready. I got, I have a, uh, the Grim Reaper's TED Talk. Oh. <laughs> That's awesome. That's another good title. <laughs> yeah, and then I have an, another one. That I, 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 these are 5 a.m. things. Yeah, yeah. I wake up and I say, oh, yeah, we have to have Satan. He's, like, trying to encourage people to come to hell. And, like, what is this on hell? What you've always really wanted, <laughs> you know? And, you know, yeah, you'll be doing, but come on. You're dead. It's not going to bother you that much. Nice. Oh, that's great. Um, well, Tyson. thanks so much, David. I really appreciate you and your openness and just being able to talk with you. And it's been, it's, I really like having you in my life. I'm so glad you're one of my mom's best friends. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. She and I have a, a bond. Yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah. I love her deeply. She's amazing, yeah. Yeah, she is. You guys are both amazing and very lovable. Yeah. So. And we're both, we're both edgy. We both like stay on the edge. I totally. like that a lot. I yeah. love it. I mean, it saved me to have her in my life. Someone yeah. that gave me the, the license to do that. Yeah, you know, to that's be, great to hear. To push boundaries and be, you know, a weirdo. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> So, uh, well, thanks so much for, for being here. Thank you, Justin. This was a lot of fun, actually. And I appreciate your encouragement, and I appreciate learning something about you as well. Cool. Yeah, we have masturbation in common. That's, yeah, that's yeah. good. That's <laughs> good. That's rare. It's rare among men, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'm so, so glad we could share that. The, masturbation the and alcoholism. Right. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> what else is there? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you again soon, I hope. Good. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was my friend David Roach. Uh, his last name is spelled R-O-C-H-E. 
And please go check out his website at davidroach.com where you can find links to his some of his work, um, his book, The Church of 80% Sincerity, and uh, the video that he and his wife Marlena made called Love at Second Sight, which is great. It's uh, I've seen them perform it live, and uh, it's the story of how they met, and it teaches us something about what it's like to live with a facial difference and uh, what it means to see right past that and see the whole person. And it's beautiful, and it's something that I think we could all use a little bit more of, a little less of the surface judgment and a little more looking into what's real and what really matters. And I hope you could tell from hearing David speak for a bit that he is real and um, I'd say uh, well-suited to the task. So um, now for gratitude, which I hope to remember to do every week. Um, I want to thank Amy, who let us use her house to record in, and thank her also for the very kind words she had to say about the podcast and what it means to her, Uh, because that means a lot to me to get feedback like that. Um, And I want to thank David for being a guest and for being so open and willing to go wherever we went. That's one of my favorite things. Um, And I want to thank my mom for introducing me to David and to Amy and to many other very cool people, places, and things and ideas throughout my life. So thank you, Mom. I truly appreciate you and all that you have done and continue to do. All right. I love you all. Thanks for listening. Uh, Hope that you're hanging in there when the hanging gets tough. And uh, just know that other people are out there feeling stuff. And, you know, the more we connect with one another and express what's going on, the better off we will all be, I believe. Okay, take it easy. Talk to you soon.